Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. As the country and states go through the phases of reopening, what does this mean for the patient and site experience in clinical trials? What can sponsors do now uh, to set themselves up for success? What have we learned about decentralized trials and how we can apply those learnings to aid in study participation design moving forward? And will hybrid be the new normal for everything in our lives for some time? And what are the gaps remaining to get to that future? So this program is dedicated to the impact of COVID-19 on clinical trials. Where are we and where are we going? So my guests include Dr. Ray Dorsey, Professor of Neurology and Director of the Center for Health and Technology at the University of Rochester Medical Center, Craig Lipset, Founder, Clinical Innovation Partners, LLC, and former Head of Clinical Innovation at Pfizer. And Matt Kirby, President and Principal, BBK Worldwide. So for me, this is a dream team discussion as I have collaborated with BBK uh, for over 10 years and they have remained relentless in their commitment to enhancing the clinical trial patient experience. And Ray, an, uh, a leading neurologist who embraced mobile and digital technologies years ago to reduce patient burden participation in clinical trials and finds time to write books. And in fact, Ray, I'm happy to say that your book just arrived um, in my mailbox. Um, so on ending Parkinson's disease. So congratulations. I have a copy here and I hope to get it signed from you at, at, at some point, Ray. I would be delighted. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and Craig, um, who has been a lead advisor to DFARM uh, for over 10 years now. So welcome everyone. Thank, Thank you, you Val. Much, Thank you, Val. All right, so let's get started with, um, I'd like to start by talking about the interest level and sponsor adoption of virtual solutions before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. So for example, how receptive have you found the industry uh, in terms of their conversations about things like telehealth and um, decentralized trials? Um, I, I'll open it up and, um, you know, uh, Craig, perhaps I can start with you. Thanks, Val. I would say that five months ago, um, the interest was very experimental at best. Most large pharma companies had an initiative. Most of them had an experiment that they had done, one or a small cluster of studies. And I mean specifically around using decentralized in investigational, um, in, in, in clinical trials for investigational medicines, right? Uh, not just using it for observational research, for example. Um, so most companies uh, had some level of activity, but it was hardly enterprise. It was hardly even thinking about driving enterprise levels of adoption. And when I say they had an initiative, maybe it was a group of seven or eight people, each giving five or 10% of their time to sit and you know, explore the space, but hardly uh, the type of commitments we're seeing people embracing today. Mm. Yeah, Matt, from your perspective, what have you seen? Um, well, you know, when, when Craig, when you say most companies, I think that's also most uh, large pharma companies too. I mean, when we're working with midsize and smaller pharma companies, even those, small, even those groups of individuals may not be there. So, you know, we were, so, so I guess it, 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 it's difficult to answer that question because BBK, you know, we've always tried to be at the vanguard of innovation. You know, we've tried to be one of those companies where we put forth an idea into the marketplace. We try to drive adoption of it. Um, 
And we use at the basis of that our technological platform to have flexibility and scalability. But as, as you say, uh, Craig, you know, having people understand what the benefit of that is <clears throat> and then actually adopting it is a very difficult thing. We've had interest in those things, but then that, that interest tends to be sort of drawn back into the more, uh, you know, traditional approaches to help with patient engagement or site engagement. So maybe it's, it's been something that we've seen as, as something that's helped us, you know, talk um, with authority, leading authority towards the industry. But in the end, it's coming back to something that's, you know, more traditional. I mean, I've long, long said that it's, I find it highly ironic that, the, that, that an industry that requires innovation is, is, is and, and needs to innovate to, to advance um, you know, human healthcare outcomes, but we find it so hard to innovate in the processes of doing so. Um, and a lot of that comes back to people just always asking us about things like, what is the ROI on that particular thing? And very hard to be able to, um, to, to, to assess that if, if no one's ever tried it. Um, you know, uh, and, and it's not just about asking about what the ROI is on a particular solution. It's also asking what the ROI is on, say, patient centricity in focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. You know, I mean, that, that's something that I'm just, I'm, I'm taking, that's hyperbole, by the way, that's, that's hyperbole. But it's, it's something that's in many cases unknowable without actually having done it. No one wants to be the first people to do it. So we, you know, again, there are groups that, you know, are willing to try certain things, but it usually comes back to it. It, it, it did anyway before before COVID nineteen hit. It comes back to a more traditional solution. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, so Ray, so you have been an early adopter um, to technologies to make life easier for patient participation. Um, so how have things changed for you with COVID nineteen um, and for colleagues, and what have you seen? Uh, so I'll first start on the care front. So uh, just like decentralized studies have actually been around for a long time. Craig led the first uh, entirely remote trial at Pfizer in 2011. Uh, so the technology and the means to do so have been in place for a long time. Similarly, telemedicine using two-way interactive video has been around for a long time, but adoption has been about 1% of less than 1% of visits at major medical centers. But in two months, we saw more transformation in healthcare delivery than we did in the previous two generations. So we saw uh, telemedicine go from a niche to the dominant means at our medical center. It went from less than 1% of all visits to 60% to of all visits in less than uh, two months. I think we're on the cusp of seeing something very similar to happen to clinical trials, whereas decentralized studies were like less than probably 0.1% of all, all studies, I think we're going to see rapid adoption of virtual research visits into uh, studies in the right now. And I'm sure companies are coming up with short-term solutions around that. And we're fielding lots of calls to do that for neurological conditions. I think in the future, you're going to see people, people plan entirely decentralized clinical trials, at least for some indications. Wow. Um, so, Craig, what does, well, for those that work in clinical trials, like thinking about, okay, um, where you're saying we, we, you know, we're really on the cusp here and it's an opportunity and it's something I know we've been, you know, wanting for so long and Craig, obviously you've led a lot of efforts and you've collaborated with EPK on some of these efforts. Um, what do you think next steps have to be? Like, what do we need to do to get us there? You no, know, Val, I feel like we've had this, um, 
spring of continuity where everybody was focused on just making the studies sustain, um, avoid missing doses, avoid missing data. And in the scramble, that was doing it through SOP uh, deviation, uh, SOP waivers and protocol deviations, uh, because that's how we, we do it when we're in a rush. Um, now it's this question about uh, sustainability. Are we really going to commit to this? This is the summer of commitment that we're coming into. And our organization's going to really commit to this change. This is not the new normal unless people commit to making it the new normal. And we know what commitment means inside of these companies, large and small. SOPs have to be revised. Vendors need to be expanded. The types of partners organizations are working with need to be rethought. Training has to be incorporated for both internal staff as well as the adjacent staff at CROs and at sites to be able to use these new tools and approaches in a sustaining way. And perhaps most important, protocol authoring needs to be rethought. And when we're developing our clinical development plans for the molecule, mapping out over the next few years what studies we're going to be doing and what endpoints we're going to be measuring, we have to make sure that we've accounted for endpoints that are location flexible, endpoints that don't care if we're measuring in the clinic or in the home. Because without that early investment in planning, we're locked in to outdated endpoints that are forcing patients to travel to a clinic to measure things that we know we can measure in better and smarter ways using diagnostics, using new digital endpoints and so on. Great, mm. thank you. Um, Matt, in your experience, what changes have you seen um, in the conversations people are having to, to drive um, action in terms of adopting um, new ways of, of uh, working with patients, um, making life easier for patients. Um, what has that been like for you guys? Well, you know, it was, it was just mentioned earlier, Ray was saying how, you know, this change has been just accelerated in the last few months more than it has in the last decade. And, and it's been a very similar experience to us too. Um, we've had more inquiries about all of these kinds of new and innovative technologies and products that we've been offering into the marketplace in the last few months than we've had in the last few years as well. So it's a very, very similar situation. Um, and, and that's been out of necessity. A lot of the studies, obviously, uh, enrollment paused, sites closed, not all of them, um, but, you know, but most, m many sites were closing. And that meant that um, we had to find really uh, clear, rapid, innovative solutions to, to keep people in studies. Um, and, and, you know, what you're, when you're thinking about how important that is, you know, that there's, there's, a diff, there's degrees of importance. Sometimes um, there are healthy volunteer studies. Perhaps people weren't seeing, were saying, hey, no, I'm not going into any kind of study visits and that was going to halt. Um, but then there are people who have rare diseases or more serious conditions, serious, more serious than COVID-19, who required support to be able to go into their sites and so on. And so we were seeing a lot of requests for um, medication delivery the ability to reassign sites, the ability to do um, e-consenting or provide more engagement for people when they're um, waiting in between visits, um, so on and so forth. I mean, we'd go into more detail about that, but those are the kinds of things that people were trying to, um, you know, were, were talking to us about. And, and Craig is absolutely right. These kinds of things can be implemented 
rapidly because there is, um, you know, there's, there's a, an emergent need for some things like this to happen. But these kinds of things then have to be documented, reported to the IRBs, and then we have to make a commit a commitment to it, like, like Craig said, if this is going to be something that is long term, this has to be protocol amendments and people have to be rewriting protocols. And I think I feel that that's going to be still a relatively slow change. I mean, I could be wrong, but I still feel that, that the ability to integrate those kinds of things is going to be it's going to slow down again at the end of COVID-19. And I can explain why, but I think I'm going to pass it over to Ray to perhaps even add to talk to it. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts there, Ray? Well, yeah, I'll pick up on the summer of commitment. Uh, I think the failure to commit will be risky. Uh, so uh, the conditions that Matt were alluding to and that I care for and that Craig's been involved in, they're all generally older individuals. Many are obese, many have hypertension, and many have diabetes, and many have compromised respiratory function. Uh, the idea that you're going to be able to do a long-term study in almost all clinical trials take months, if not years, to take. Uh, I think w unless you commit to decentralized studies, at least as an option, uh, you're going to be in a lot of, you're exposing yourself to a huge amount of risk. We might go into a nadir with COVID-19 uh, in different parts of the country and different parts of the world in the summer. But uh, given that the vast majority of people haven't been infected, the vast majority of people aren't immune, and there's no prospects, I think, to have a vaccine uh, by the fall or winter, uh, that you know, you're going to need to have site flexible approaches in person in clinic, in person in home, or remote uh, as a minimum uh, for your clinical trials. As Craig alluded to, we exam examiner, rater, expert, like people like me in theory, uh, dependent rating scales uh, that need to be conducted in clinic. Uh, simply will not will be very vulnerable uh, to COVID-19 and are quite fragile. So this is in addition to changing the way we conduct the visits in terms of using technology to conduct the visits. I think we're at to change the way we do the assessments and you start using digital devices and things that we carry around with us everywhere we go uh, to better measure health and determine whether our drugs and devices are working or not working. And oh, by the way, I think we're going to find out that these are far more sensitive, generate far better data that's objective and reflects what's going on in the real world than our traditional rating scales. Ray, um, because you've been such an early um, adopter to mobile and digital technologies to give patients flexibility, did you find that many of your colleagues came to you for help when they had to do the same thing? You want my inbox? Um, uh, yes, uh, we have lots of discussions with our colleagues. We're trying to uh, we're trying to train uh, them. We just had a discussion about uh, setting up training. I got Craig Lipset. I'm getting him an adjunct faculty position so he can help uh, train not only our staff, but uh, uh, our colleagues around the country and around the world. And we'll get Matt involved uh, as well. We just need to figure out how to conduct clinical trials in a new world. And Craig showed us how to do this 10 years ago. We just need to apply those lessons and techniques uh, to doing it in this world. Uh, we've connected to over a thousand people with Parkinson's disease and a wide range of other neurological conditions over the past eight years in 40 different states for five different neurological conditions uh, with these research studies. Just like in telemedicine, patients love telemedicine. People, patients love virtual research studies. They are more than happy to forego having to drive into London or into Boston or even into Rochester to be able to participate in research studies. If we can bring 
research studies to patients, participants on their terms, have participant-centered trials, like Matt's a whole focus of his company, uh, I think we're going to have uh, a lot more success. You know, Val, Ray brings up such, such great points here, as always. Um, and for anyone that doesn't believe that, they should buy his book. Either way, <laughs> they should go buy his book. But um, the, the technologies, the tools, all the tools that are needed to enable decentralized research are being proven right now every day. There should be no doubt in people's minds about the accessibility of this technology for researchers, the feasibility to use in our studies, and really the only remaining question I see people um, having grief or, or worry about is regulatory acceptance. Will the regulators accept my data when it's collected in this way? I've seen some that say, well, we need, we need guidance from the FDA. Well, the FDA has given guidance, right, clearly as far as um, measures to take during the pandemic. And there's been strong indication that anything they've written will be committed to. But the, the guidance didn't have to give people permission. There's no bar that was lowered by the FDA for companies to be able to embrace decentralized research methods today. The FDA simply said to do what we've always said to do, to document, to use thoughtful processes. And wherever possible, you should be validating what you're doing. And that's really what this comes down to, this barrier in people's minds that will the FDA accept this? We know how to overcome that barrier. We validate our measurements and we validate them in the setting in which we're going to be acquiring them. And we've been validating new endpoints for decades. This is not a new idea. We've brought other endpoints to the FDA that have been accepted. There are catalogs of endpoints from the FDA. I don't want to say that these types of things are excuses that people come up with, but I can say they are clearly surmountable. Yeah, I mean, I would just want to add to that, you know, even, even just using our own experience of just sitting here and doing this, uh, this, this podcast via Zoom right now is sort of validation that these new work styles uh, are viable. And, you know, it, even for our company, there was, a, there was a, a certain level of unsurety about whether we could actually go fully virtual as a company um, before COVID-19 hit. And then it did. And then we actually finding that we're working very successfully, very hard as well. People are actually working much harder. Um, actually online, it feels like, like, I don't know about you guys, but it always feels that I'm always on a Zoom call, you know, every minute of the day. Um, but it really, I think is, if any kind of validation is needed to the individual to understand that this is something that would work, it then I think this whole situation has helped us all in that way as well. So it's something that, um, you know, we could, it's, it's easy to believe in, or it's much easier to believe in now that we've all, all experienced it. Um, I'm actually also just going to throw in that I, 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 I as a person, I, I haven't really in, um, embraced uh, tele, telemedicine until this COVID-19 had hit. I actually, a couple of weeks ago, I was having a dermatological issue. It's like I'm having like neuropathic pain in, in my back, on my skin, and my my my, uh, my clothes rubbing against my skin would provide me with an issue. So I called up my doctor and we had a FaceTime um, over, uh, you know, through our iPhones on it. But there was some, some level of ridiculousness to that too. When he was asking to see this patch on my back, I was trying to get my phone like on the spot so he could see the, see the area to see if there was a rash or something like that. And, and, but it did strike me that, yeah, maybe there is this need for hybridization. Maybe it's a bit too soon to go fully virtual because it's still, I still had to go in for uh, lab work and 
then it ultimately still had to take a look at it because I couldn't get the phone in the right spot for him to see it. So, but, but I feel like, yes, this kind of, this normalization of, um, of us working virtually, it feels like it's been validated. But then again, it feels like there's still levels of connection that are going to be necessary or, or, or wanted by patients as well. Like st there's still some component of wanting that human contact. And you can, you can also sort of see that in the way that there's some people rejecting the whole idea of, of, of operating safely in this time. You know, when people are just going out and doing whatever they want in bars and so on and so forth. So I feel like that there's still some level of people wanting to have personal connection with a physician that doesn't happen over one of these you know, types of connection too. So I, I, I'm, on, I'm on your boat. I, you've mentioned hybrid, hybridization and I feel that, that that seems to be the inevitability that's coming down the track rather than purely decentralized trials. Well, I think, Matt, you know, the, um, the world is shifting to a new normal where, look, the pendulum for most things in our life was brick and mortar. It's how we bought our groceries. It's how we took meetings in business. It's how our kids went to school. It's how we saw the doctor. And for this period of history, the pendulum swung hard the other direction. And when the pendulum resettles, it is not settling on one pole or the other, but in the reality where we know that we can embrace either scenario, that in some settings, our kids can get pretty good education online, but maybe blending it. We can see our doctor and we can still interact via video when it makes sense for us. Um, we can take business meetings, we are right now, but still see each other in, in an office when it makes sense. And I believe that the same holds true for research participation. What it comes back to me with is in each of those scenarios, I as the consumer should be the one choosing. I want to choose if I'm going to get groceries next month or if I'm using Instacart. I don't want Whole Foods telling me this month must be in store and the next month must be home delivery. And I think that's the level of maturity that we have to aspire to with decentralized research. Um, not to necessarily expect everything swings into the home, not to look at hybrid as a compromise, but to fully embrace patients' ability to choose how they want to participate in a way that gives them the support that they're looking for. Yeah, thank you, Craig. Um, in fact, um, yeah, I'd, lo I'd love to get your thoughts on that, Ray. You know, so, you know, will, you know, patient-centered studies um, and virtual engagement, you know, um, you know, how do you envision this for the future? Um, similar to Craig or give a, a different opinion on that? Um, so I think it depends a lot on a few factors and one's the intervention. Uh, so if the intervention is a surgical intervention, if it's an intravenous uh, intervention, if the safety profile is unknown or it's an unsafe uh, intervention, one that has potential significant things, you're going to see in person, in clinic, or in phase one units, and that's where the study is going to uh, happen. Uh, by contrast, if it's a maybe phase three study of a small molecule and the pill has a very favorable safety profile, and there aren't significant risks, you could do a fully decentralized uh, study. And then hybrids in between, I have a, an IV infusion that needs to be done, or I have a, a surgical intervention that needs to be done one time. And so my, pre, my screening visit, my baseline visit, and my initial post-operative visit, maybe all those have to be done in person and everything else 
uh, can be conducted by hybrid. So I would think about what's the intervention that I'm trying to do and then how do I design my study around that? Um, and then to Craig's thing, I think there's two things that are un unassailable. One is flexibility, because I don't think any of us knows what the future uh, holds. So you're gonna need to have site flexible options. Maybe that post-operative visit uh, could be conducted remotely. And you're gonna need to have one that's customized and personal personalized. Some of our individuals with Parkinson's disease are happy to come back into the clinic and participate in research, and some are not. Some of our staff are happy to see research participants back in clinic, some are not. Uh, some of our clinics have space, some don't. Um, there's just gonna be a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of challenges around the traditional in-person, in-clinic, especially at major medical centers, mm -hmm. conduct of research. You know, you, you were talking about um, sponsors, pharma biotech companies and uh, uh, major research centers, health systems, um, but are, are you finding um, sites, other types of sites or um, other partners equally embracing virtual solutions? Because it takes, it takes a village, doesn't it? Craig or? So as, as far as um, the, the willingness to embrace, I think people are embracing out of necessity and I think they're embracing in limited ways that, that fit to, their, uh, to, to what they need to get done. Um, but it takes a certain level of visibility around a study to embrace the, the bigger, I'll say the bigger picture of the opportunity. So what do I mean by that? Um, the lens of a study coordinator is vital in terms of execution, but their, their lens in terms of the decentralized tools that they can engage with and that they can bring to bear are limited just based on the, the scope of what they're touching and interacting with in their critical role within a study. Um, there's only so far they can go. The CRA, likewise, vital role, tight scope, right? That they're that they're able to manage and dictate. Are they embracing the tools? They have to, right? In order to in order to work and get their job done. Um, I think though what that speaks to Val is as we are driving this change and making the making these commitments, how much we have to make sure we're investing in bringing everybody along with this. This aspect that Ray was bringing up around training is so important that we are making sure that every stakeholder, not just those that are writing the protocol um, or not just the investigator, but the CRAs, the study coordinators and all of these other roles are getting the information that they need in order to come along with this future. And Matt, um, I wanted to ask you your thoughts on envisioning the future here. Um, you know, are you in the same sort of camp or do you have a, a different opinion on this? You know, I, I, I'm probably probably the, re, the the most realist of, of all of the, the folks here on this call, and because because I'm usually the one who has to go out there and sell an idea that then gets bought by a pharmaceutical company, and, and again, there's been a variety of experiences there, whether it's a um, a, a pharmaceutical company that has is bigger or smaller, um, and and that will change your experience in terms of what can be tolerated in terms of cost and return on investment and all those other kinds of things. Whether we like it or not, the the, uh, the 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 idea of return on investment becomes part of the discussion. Whether the, the clinical team wants something, and whether they do work with uh, ad boards and so on about whether these things can be effective, and that's what the patients want, what the advocacy groups want, and what the sites want, um, all these different stakeholders. 
sometimes it comes back to then everybody saying, yeah, sounds like a good idea, but then outsourcing said, you know, we'll cut those things out of programs because it just, you know, it, I mean, there's, maybe I'm just drawing too much experience from what's, you know, my experience prior to this. Um, but I'm, I'm assuming that there's going to be some sort of like um, the pendulum might start to swing the other way as well, because um, even though this, as Craig said, the pendulum swung hard this way because out of necessity and people have to do these things to keep trials going and people in trials, one can sort of start to see, well, when things do go back to a bit to normal, as Ray said, there is risk in not being able to have these kinds of things in place just in case something else happens. Well, there's also risk in adding in cost into clinical trials, which may not actually be necessary at certain points in time as well. So, so these kinds of things are always a financial consideration. And I'm not saying that everything that we're talking about here has to be expensive, but certain things can be. Um, and so, so, so those types of things tend to play on this. And what I'll just say to that in the end is that, you know, I continually get asked the idea about what is the ROI on something. And I, may, I was alluding to this before, in, in unknowable ways, you know, what is, what is the ROI on smiling at somebody and saying thank you? Um, you know, if that was a novel idea, how would you measure it? I, I've got no idea how you, you know, how you'd measure it. But intuitively, if we know these things are going to be helpful, then I think perhaps maybe the burden of proof on whether or not we should be doing these things lies on the people who are denying the need to do it. And I don't think that's with the clinical teams necessarily, but I'm just, you know, hopefully that's going to be pushing back onto the, you know, the folks who, who have the budget strengths. Mm. Uh, Matt, thank you. Um, and I want to thank all of you um, for gathering to have this discussion on the impact of COVID-19 on clinical trials and what we envision the future to be like and looking at the realities and embracing change. Um, I'm so pleased that you are all going to be part of um, either the Mobile and Clinical Trials Conference or the DFARM conference that's happening um, in September, um, which is now purely virtual. Um, and to wrap up, I wanted to provide um, some information. Uh, so Matt, if people want to find out more information on BBK, the website is bbkworldwide.com. Um, and Ray, um, your book on ending Parkinson's disease, uh, I bought it on Amazon. I don't know if there's other um, places. I want a signed copy now too. Sorry, I'm going to get a, a signed copy. Shoot me an email and we'll get it to you. So you can uh, buy it on Amazon. You can buy it at Barnes & Noble. You can visit our website, endingpd.org. If you want to learn more about Parkinson's disease or more about virtual trials for Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease or all these diseases that are the cause of the world's leading, that are the world's leading source of disability and for which we have no effective treatments, you can just email us at info at endingpd.org. And if you want a copy of the book and you can't afford it, just shoot us an email. We'll send you one for free. Info at endingpd.org. All right. Thank you. Ray, Ray, do you have an audible version? Can I listen to you narrate the book it, to it, me? It, well, it's not my voice. I haven't actually heard it, but I'm told that there is an audible version. Someone can tell me uh, how good it, how, how it is. Hopefully good. And then to keep up with Craig Lipset, and good luck to those who can, um, but you can check out Craig's Twitter, uh, twitter.com backslash Craig Lipset. And for more information about upcoming podcasts and conferences, visit theconferenceforum.org. So thank you so much, everyone.